Okay, now it's time for our increasingly popular uh, podcast uh, where we ask well-known people for their top five books. Uh, I'm delighted to say we're joined by the well-known author of An Evening of Long Goodbyes, uh, Skippy Dies and The Mark and the Void. Paul Murray, thanks indeed for coming into us. Thanks for having me. Before we get to your top five books, I have to ask you because it's just Skippy Dies. It was such a huge success. When you read in the paper that the British Prime Minister is, is taking the book you've just written off on holidays, which like, it, do you get an incredible buzz from something like that? Uh, <laughs> or was, do you, are you horrified? Oh, well, somewhere kind of between the two. It was yeah. definitely surprising. I mean, that book was – I mean, I'm naturally sort of quite a fatalistic person. So I think the one thing I wasn't expecting for that book was it to have this kind of crazy success that it had. And every, every, you know, every sort of month or two, there'd be some new level that it would reach – Cameron was probably the, the strangest episode. But yeah, there was all kinds of lovely stories came back to me. For instance, I heard about a couple who were sort of independently traveling in Europe and they're both reading Skippy Dies on the railway platform and the guy went over to the girl and said, you know, how are you enjoying the book? Wow. And it's I like, it's like uh, was it before midnight or that? Yeah, that before, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's it, lovely because, you know, it's uh, a lot of the time, if you know, if you're working as a writer, you're on your own, you know, and you don't know if the book's... Or getting to anybody, you know, so it's, it was wonderful to have wow. that, that feedback. Skippy dies where love stories begin. Yes, wow. they should put that on the, on the <laughs> in brackets. Yeah. Uh, come here, I mean, you're from, um, I suppose your background would have been kind of bookish. I mean, your dad was a, is a professor, your your mum was a teacher. So, I mean, I suppose books were probably all around you when you were growing up, were they? Absolutely. I mean, the house was literally falling down with books. I mean, my, despite the best efforts of my my mother to stop them like books just kept on flooding the house. <laughs> and that's what we do for every weekend. We'd go to the library in Dunleary and, and then go to Mass. Yeah. <laughs> sounds, like a, sounds like a typical upbringing in those days. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can identify with that. Um, listen, let's get to your choices because it, it was in, interesting you say you're quite a fatalistic person. Yeah. Uh, your first choice maybe is in keeping with that, Waiting for Godot by uh, Samuel Beckett. Yeah, I think you could be regarded as being kind of a fairly fatalistic play. I mean, I know it's not strictly speaking a book, but I thought I could sort of slip it in there. And yeah, yeah, no, I think it's fair enough. It's something that's more talked about than read. Is that a fair comment? Well, it might be. I mean, Beckett's one of these guys who has this, uh, there's a lot of sort of artists, you know, writers, musicians as well, who have kind of this aura of, of darkness about them. And it puts a lot of people off. And Beckett is regarded as being one of these very, you know, austere, kind of bleak, pessimistic writers. But he's very, very, very funny. Mm. You know, he's like a very tender, humane kind of a writer. And this play, Waiting for God, it bears it out. I mean, we did it in school. I like had this great English teacher in school who did it with us. And we went to see the production in the gate at the time with Johnny Murphy, who just passed away, sadly, and Barry McGovern. And it was just mind-blowing. You know, it was so unflinchingly confronting, like, the very basic questions of life. Like, what is it to live? Like, is there any point to being alive whatsoever? And at the same time, just hilariously funny. Like, yeah. those of slapstick comedy. And Does that, uh, I mean, does that the absurdity of life. Does that appeal to you? I don't know if it so much appeals to me as, as strikes me as unavoidable. You know, every day, you know, even before you leave your house, some manifestation of the absurd will strike you. <laughs> you know, you've got a four-year-old, like it's particularly written large, you know, yeah. whatever <laughs> sure. keys get thrown out of the toilet or whatever it might be. So, yeah, that's something that I guess I've felt from early on that life's really beyond our control, you know, and like no matter what sort of plans or measures you take to try and outwit it, it's not going to work, you know, something's going to, you're going to slip on a banana skin somewhere along the way. And I really like Beckett because he doesn't gloss life in any regard. Like he always, he focuses on vulnerable people and marginalised people, you know, old people like in Waiting for God, it's, it's two tramps, you know, who literally have, have nothing. And at the same time, he finds something in there to keep them going. Just this friendship that they have and this kind of love that they have for each other. 
is enough to sustain him. We were talking with a previous guest, Peter Sheridan was in, and he was talking about Beckett. I mean, he obviously is this great intellect and very cerebral character, but he was also this incredibly earthy character as well. I mean, with all the the vices and so on that human nature falls falls prey to. And does that come through in, in, in the book, do you think, both sides of him? Yeah, well, it's very... I mean, I wouldn't know as much about him as, as Peter Sheridan, I suspect, but I, I was talking to someone recently who said that he was very fond of Tullamore Jew and... Whenever anyone would come and visit him, they'd bring him some Tullamore Jew. So when he was dying in the nursing home, just his room was just full of bottles of Tullamore Jew. <laughs> but yeah, I think the plays and the, the novels too, they're full of like really knockabout humour. Like he was a big fan of Buster Keaton and Charlie Chapman, this kind of like very physical comedy. Like he obviously liked to laugh, you know? So, and, I, and that's something that I've always, that's the way my personality would be sort of of a similar bent, I guess, you know? On the one hand, I would think that life is, is very unkind and very cruel. It can be very sort of hard on people. But at the same time, if you're able, you know, not to sound trite, but if you're able to sort of find some kind of a humour in it, right, some, some kind mm. of a joke in it, that can pull you through yeah. a very tough situation. Okay. Uh, listen, let's get to your, your next choice. Gravity's Rainbow. I mean, this is a huge work of fiction. I mean, it's yeah. regarded by some as one of the greatest works of fiction from a, a North American writer in the 20th century. When did you come to this book? I think I was about 19 or 20 and I was studying English in Trinity College and this beautiful American girl came visiting. She was doing a sort of a junior year abroad thing. And uh, she knew about all these these American bands I'd never heard of and all these American writers I'd never heard of, one of whom was this, was this guy, Thomas Pynchon, who was a very, very mysterious figure. Like, he was, he was in the Navy in, I think, about 1957, and that's the last time any pictures of him were, any ta- were ever taken. Like, he sort of he disappeared. He's never done any publicity. He's never done any interviews. Kind of a J.D. Salinger type character? Yeah, well, someone said he makes J.D. Salinger look like Boy George. You know, he's like... <laughs> he's a... Uh, so he sort of he basically sort of vanished, you know, except for these books. There's a great there's a book called um, Positively Fort Street, which is a biography of Bob Dylan, and the writer of that actually interviewed Pynchon for this book because Pynchon and Dylan bizarrely were at this wedding when um, Pynchon's friend Richard Farina married Mimi Baez. Joan Baez was Mimi Baez's sister, mm. so Dylan. So these two icons at the same wedding. I'd hate to be the wedding band at that wedding. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but he's talking about Pynchon's sort of reluctance to sort of appear before any kind of an audience. So like when, he's, when readings were proposed to him, you know, he'd say like, oh, I, don't, I don't want to appear in public. And the guy would say, well, you know, you could appear behind a screen. And he'd say, well, someone might recognise my voice. <laughs> very, very paranoid, wow. strange guy, yeah. like very, very mysterious guy, who then turned up in The Simpsons in about 2000, wearing a paper bag with a question mark on it. Brilliant. So a very wacky guy. Yeah. But he's, I mean, he's just a, I mean, genius isn't a word that I, I really like, but he's unavoidably a genius. Because so like, like, people may not be aware of, of the premise of the book. I mean, it's, it, try and explain it to us in a few lines, if you will. Well, it's a very long book and it's a very, very strange book and a lot of people find it hard to get through and it's sort of more like a prose poem than a novel. Like, it's, it's yeah. difficult to follow. Echoes of James Joyce, sort of. Uh, yeah, very much so. Yeah. yeah, I think Joyce is a big influence on him. But it's mostly set, it's set in sort of the, in the period immediately after the Second World War. And it's mostly about this GI called Tyrone Slothrop, who's kind of wandering in what's called a zone, this kind of like fragmented Europe where all the borders have sort of disintegrated in this morass of refugees and escaped Nazis and so on. And he's got some kind of mysterious connection with this, these V2 rockets that are falling on London. He's got some sort of connection in his past that he doesn't understand. And he's trying to pursue this connection. And also to find this mysterious, uh, this Schwarzgrad, it's called this mysterious black rocket that's being planned. And it's very, what really appealed to me about it was that, firstly, it's very funny. It's really, again, like a bit like Beckett, he's got this very sort of slapstick sensibility. And for all the sort of high-end prose, there's a load of, um, just like very, very kind of broad comedy in it. Beautifully written, loads of poetry to it. But what really appealed to me was just the anger. It's set in the 40s. 
but it's really an allegory for Nixon's America. So Pynchon's writing in like the 70s, so it's just after Daniel Ellsberg has released the Pentagon Papers and for the first time America reveals the scale of the government's lies about Vietnam and all these kids who were sent to their death in Vietnam. So it's about that. It's about sort of the disintegration of the American dream. Mm. So Nixon has this kind of this cameo appearance near the end of it. So it's, it's a really furious book and it's got this tremendous energy. And people find it hard going, but... I was going to say, it's not an easy read. It kind of depends what you want from it. Like I heard Paul Thomas Anderson, the director, did an adaptation of Pynchon's recent book, Inherent Vice, and he was talking about it on the radio and just saying he got through it and that's about as much as he felt he could do. But if you're not, if you sort of just go with it, you know, and just like let the poetry flow over you and enjoy sort of the, all of the weird digressions, you know, there's little ghost stories and there's a biography of a light bulb, you know, and there's a giant octopus, you know. And if you just sort of enjoy those things and don't worry too much about trying to figure it out, then it's just incredible. You know, okay. It's unparalleled. Right. Okay. Our guest is the author, uh, Paul Murray. We're going through his top five books. We've already had uh, Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett, and uh, we were just talking there about Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon. Your third choice, the Scottish author, Ali Smith, How to Be Both. I mean, this is a fascinating book. There's not too many books that it's kind of a, a lucky dip when you pick up the book, what you're going to get. But this one literally is, because there's two parts to it. And am I right in saying, that depending on which copy you pick up, you start with one story or the other. That's it. That's it exactly. So it's, it's two stories, one set in Renaissance Italy and the other set in modern day Cambridge in the UK. And yeah, they issued half of the copies started with the Renaissance story and half of them started with the... I couldn't help but thinking when... Now, of course, like, I suppose she had a bit of form. So, I mean, but trying to pitch that idea to a publisher, I'd say, would be tricky if you were just a first-time novelist, I yeah. imagine. Well, I went to this... Um, I did a creative writing master's in East Anglia in Norwich and she was my tutor there. And at that stage, she her, her kind of a breakout book, Hotel World, was just about to come out. So she hadn't gone become as kind of famous as she then became. But she's such a smart person. Like, she's such an intelligent person. And at the same time, like a very playful person and a very kind of humane person. And she's got this gift for taking, like, very, very kind of complex ideas about, like, the world, about politics, about philosophy, and making them really relatable and sort of easy to understand and just very readable and fun. So her editor, like the reason my first book was picked up was because her editor at Hamish Hamilton, she told her editor about me when, when, when I was at UEA and the editor wrote to me and said, let's see your book. So I've got a great debt of gratitude to her, but mm. also just because she was such a, as a teacher, she was just so, as, or as a writer, she was such an amazing model because she was so brave and sh- so innovative and always trying these different things. And they come off, like she takes these chances and they come off. And this book is like, it's very playful but it's also, again, it's very, I mean, it's just beautiful. I mean, you, you hard not to shed a tear when you're reading really? that story. yeah. Because yeah? it's about, like, the first half is about this, or the first half I read was about Francesco uh, del Casso, who's this Renaissance artist who's painting a fresco in this nobleman's palace and increasingly worried about whether or not he's going to get paid. And then he, he reappears as a ghost. He finds himself in, in 21st century Britain and he's kind of wandering around. He's following this girl who's got this tablet. He doesn't know what it is. She's carrying around his, his <laughs> iPad and he's gone. He thinks it's some sort of like a votive painting or something like that and he thinks she's praying to it, you know, but instead she's taking pictures and she's looking at the internet and, and the girl is grieving, like she's lost her mother and she's just really at sea, you know, she's like 16 and her dad is alcoholic and she's got a younger brother and, and she's just completely alone, you know, and, and for all of the kind of the games, again, like what I really love about Ali is that for all of the ingenuity and innovation, like she just gets to the heart of things, just of people who are suffering or in pain and tries to find some way to pull them out of it. Okay. I have to admit, I haven't read this book, but I mean, it doesn't sound a million miles away from the kind of things you were talking about in relation to Beckett, or am I completely wrong here? No, absolutely. I mean, I think she did a PhD on Finnegan's Wake 
Wow. Which I, I wow. wouldn't wish on my worst no, enemy. <laughs> but, uh, but I'd imagine she's a big Beckett fan as well. But I think that's Ali. She doesn't intimidate people the same way that Beckett does. Like, she's kind of inclusive, you know? Yeah. So she finds some ways. If you pick up one of her books, just from the first sentence, you'll find yourself drawn in. And it's a very kind of like a warm environment to be in, you know? And it's a very... Just the characters are so beautifully drawn. And just the atmosphere of it is so friendly and compassionate that it's hard not to love it. Okay, now we're going for something, as Monty Python would say, as soon as we're talking about it, absurd, completely different in your uh, second last choice. Yeah, this is kind of an outlier. But maybe it's not as much of an outlier as, as we think. Okay, I'm, I'm fascinated where you're thinking this with this one, but go on, yeah. <laughs> uh, so One Nation Under God by Thomas Frank is... One Market Under God, isn't one it? One Market Under God, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just thinking about books that had affected me, and this book was probably the first book of politics or economics that I'd read. Like, I didn't read nonfiction really at all until I was about sort of 25 or 26. And this was kind of one of the first things that I read. And it's about the internet boom in yeah. 1999, 2000. And it's this kind of furious, again, quite funny screed about the world being sold a pup with regard to like what Thomas Frank calls the market populism that was kind of prevalent at the time. So this idea that was floating around in the States particularly, but I think it sort of it manifested here as well. Um, oh, it did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that instead of governments, people should trust to the market, you know, and, and businesses and corporations. And these would be the entities that would set us free and that anything that was done to stop corporations or businesses was working against the interests of the common man and the common woman. Mm. And he was very prescient. I think that book came out before the internet bubble it burst. It did, yeah. It did. Was he not ultimately slightly proven wrong? I mean, I know it's easy to say it with hindsight. Yeah. Um, well, maybe he was proven right again with the crash that subsequently happened. But, okay, the dot-com bubble was a little bit like the sort of South Seas bubble or whatever. But ultimately, technology and, and those things, I mean, they did come and take over our lives to a huge extent. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that what he's talking about is more sort of the economic effects that they would have. I mean, I think the yeah. way that they were sold to us was that everyone would be liberated by this, by the internet yeah. technology. Uh, and well, in the one way, like, I mean, obviously, like the internet and digital technology, I mean, it has liberated. Like, there's all kinds of amazing consequences that every minute of our lives we're, we're experiencing. But at the same time, when the Nasdaq bubble burst, it was the biggest destruction of capital in the history of civilization mm. until, yeah. until the crash in 2008. Yeah. So it's more the sense of this kind of uh, boosterism or these prophets who appear and say that there's going to be a revolution and everything's going to be different if you just trust us and don't ask any questions, you know? Yeah. And it's this situation that we keep being led into and keeps being very, very deleterious for almost everyone involved, except yeah. like, you know, the guys with the money who somehow managed to back both horses and kind of can find a way out of it. I mean, there's an element that the sort of Thomas Piketty obviously had, had his book a few years ago, which is, of course, a huge seller. I mean, he was almost kind of first into the fray with the kind of arguments that Piketty and others would absolutely make. yeah yeah I mean I was, I was going to suggest Piketty's book but I'm still I'm still reading it it's a yeah. long book you know? <laughs> that's one for a few pages a day but uh, as, as is this one I mean it's not well it's quite an easy style isn't it that well, he I writes think it's it. a bit more it's a bit more crack you know it's, yeah. he's, he's quite witty and he's quite like he, he's not of, an economist I suppose unlike Piketty I think he's he's, a, he's kind of a cultural critic yeah. yeah so he doesn't I mean if there's a flaw to the book it's that he doesn't have the, the economic chops really to kind of to break down how that boom and crash or how that sort of boosterism affected ordinary people. So Piketty would say that like between 79 and 2000, the richest 1% in America got something like 25% richer. You know, this huge, huge shift of wealth from primarily the middle classes to like this tiny, tiny number of people. And that's still happening. You know, that's still mm -hmm. happening now. And the same people who kind of Thomas Frank is writing about 
are still running the show in, in politics today. So would a book like this, it, it would, because I mean, you've gone for very sort of classical pieces of literature up to this point, but would that kind of book, sort of political economy, that kind of book, would that appeal to you? Historical books, would they appeal to you as well? Yeah, I mean, I mean, that stuff, that's kind of like very ruthless, aggressive capitalism. That's the page on which our lives are written, you know, so I think it's fascinating and I also find it kind of vital to kind of keep abreast of that stuff. I mean, I read an article yesterday, there's a new book about the Koch brothers, these billionaires, who are basically kind of the puppet masters of American politics. Like, whatever's happening with Clinton and Trump is, is really sort of a sideshow. Like, these guys are they're putting something like $890 million into this current presidential campaign, which is far more than both parties combined, you know. Yeah. Uh, and they're huge forces against climate change, you know. They're huge forces for uh, against, like, deregulation, against, like, environmental protection. They fought that tooth and nail. So, actually, you know, the condition of the world that we're living in, like, I'm really interested in, in climate change, and I'm really interested in the world's comparative lack of interest in climate change. We saw but, it in our recent general election where it, it hardly figured oh, it out. I, could not, I couldn't believe that. You know, yeah. It's astonishing. You know, it's astonishing that, well, we don't go down that road. But, I mean, that's very much, that's the Koch brothers' work. That's their yeah. decision to say, like, let's come back to Gravity's Rainbow and be conspiratorial about it. The Koch brothers' father made his money from building oil refineries for Stalin and Hitler, you know, so it's all connected. Yeah, yeah. Um, the reason climate change has got so much worse, we're doing so little about it, is very much because these guys have, have done so much work to stymie any kind of like scientific consensus being achieved because they're constantly, you know, they've taken the guys from tobacco and used them, deployed them in, in their fight against climate change. It is a fascinating That's book. my rant over. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. No, inter- very interesting. Uh, actually, I, I saw an interview at just that point about money and politics. I, I saw an interview with Jimmy Carter recently. I hadn't realised. And he said when he was became president, he, the amount of money he raised was, and I, I forget the exact figure, but it was absolutely minuscule what he raised to become president. And that's only 40 years ago yeah, uh, to become yeah. president. That change in that 40 years where yeah. you need to raise hundreds to be, of millions now. To, you need billionaires on yeah. your side. It's as yeah, as it's, it's, it is extraordinary. Let's get to your, your last choice because I was just, when I saw this, I said, okay, you know this guy had studied English literature with okay. this choice. This is a proper heavyweight choice that you've got for, <laughs> if you don't mind me yeah, saying. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. Essays by uh, Michel de Montaigne. Uh, yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? Or? Your guess is as, as good as mine, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've gone back, what, 500, 600 years or something with this choice? It's a, yeah. It's, yeah, tell us a little bit about it. 1580. Well, I studied philosophy in college and I've kept reading philosophy ever since. And I mean, a lot of philosophy is quite dry or incomprehensible. Yeah. Uh, but Montaigne is the opposite of those things. So the book's called Essays. And yeah. he sort of, he invented the essay where it didn't really exist before. So they're all about him. He was this 16th century nobleman. And when he was about 38, I think, he kind of retired into his tower and said, like, I'm just going to think about what it is to be alive and what it's like to be me. And I'm going to write these essays Nice to it. have the luxury of doing that. But in yeah. fairness, he had a bit of something to back it up. He's a really interesting guy. He had this very interesting upbringing. Like, he was, his father was a nobleman. I think the first nobleman in the family, I'm not sure. But his father sent him out when he was a child to live with a peasant family on the land because he wanted Montaigne to see what it was like just to be an ordinary person and not a nobleman and to get a taste of, of what life could be like. And then when he brought him home, he decided he wanted young Montaigne to be raised in entirely in Latin. So everyone in the household could speak only Latin. You know, the dad had to hire all these servants who spoke Latin. His mother had to learn Latin. So he had this very, very, this strange mix of like this very, very classical education and this kind of, this quite kind of... Down to art. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the classical upbringing stood to him in that the essays are just peppered with these amazing quotes from like Seneca and from Plutarch and from Plato and so forth. And far from being heavy, it's like just having a conversation with just the funniest, smartest, kind of warmest, decentest guy you could ever meet. Like 
it's really just about how to live. And he, he's, his whole thing about how to live and how to have a happy life is just to accept your life as it is. You know, he was just, he was quite a down-to-earth person. He wasn't an ambitious person. And he, he had this condition called the stone, which is he's prone to these bladder stones. The only way he could get rid of a bladder stone was to, uh, was to pee it out, yeah. which was excruciatingly painful. But he, he says in the book that he's grateful to it because, like, he's having realized how painful and miserable life could be, it taught him that when it's not, you should enjoy it. And yeah. that's kind of the sense of the, yeah, the sense okay. of the book. Yeah, which is a very good attitude to take to life. There's a trend through the books you've picked, even with the outlier, the one market under God. I mean, it's kind of a philosophical approach to life you get in each of the five of the books. Obviously, you studied philosophy in college. Is, is that a, a factor in that, do you think? Well, yeah, I guess like probably from when I was pretty small, I was... It's funny because I've got a, a kid now who's four and, and you sort of see these, the same kind of questions yeah. occurring to him like... What is the point of all this? You know? <laughs> Why should I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure, you know. Now just in case people think you know you only you only read heavyweight material. Uh, a little birdie you told me you also you were quite into 2000 AD which I have to admit as as a comic my friends would have read when I yeah. was a, a kid. I never really got into it. It was a, it's quite sci-fi, is it? Yeah. Ah, oh, yeah, it was amazing. Amazing comic. I read that when I was probably 14 till I was about 18 and it's uh yeah, really really strange left field stories I think my parents just kind of assumed it was like Battle or Tommy or Victor one of those things but it was just full of these like really bizarre narratives and it was kind of great training for for writing books I think because on the one hand it was really philosophical there was a guy called Alan Moore was one of their writers who wrote things like Watchmen and and V for Vendetta uh, and From Hell and stuff who wrote these like incredible like graphic stories about time they're called time twisters in three pages he'd pack what you couldn't fit in a 500 page novel and to be exposed to that stuff when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, was uh, was amazing. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, come here, just to finish, I mean, you strike me as someone who probably has about 10 books beside the bed at any given time. Yeah. Uh, one of them probably being uh, Thomas Pickett as well <laughs> at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> I keep on saying to my wife that I won't start any new books until I've finished the ones I've, I'm reading. And then I'm like, oh, maybe I'll just have a look at that. So currently, I just read a cracking novel called The Portable Veblen by an American novelist called Elizabeth McKenzie. Very, very funny. I'm reading... A biography of Napoleon by Andrew Roberts. It's fantastic. I just, I'm just reading a bit about, um, he's just met Josephine and she's got these black teeth because she grew up in Martinique and her teeth are black and these blackened stumps from eating uh, sugarcane when she was a kid. And she says, she's this operator, you know, she's had this terrible first marriage. She's been like imprisoned after the rev- resolution. So she sort of gets her hooks into Napoleon, who is a surprisingly, on the one hand, very brilliant strategist when it comes to the ladies. <laughs> very innocent. He's very, very innocent. There's a great... I remember reading about he was on his way back from some war and he sends message back to say, be home in four days to Josephine. Yeah. Don't wash. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Whatever you're into. It's a great romance. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you the great romance. Come here, I, I should ask you, I mean, you mentioned a four-year-old. I mean, I presume too young for uh, 2008. Would you read to him a lot? Oh, yeah, all the time, all the time. Currently, there's a great book called A Bit Lost by Chris Houghton. Beautiful illustrated book. He's an Irish writer. Chris Judge, another amazing writer. Chris wrote a book with a friend of mine called David Adardi called Danger is Everywhere. Oh, yeah, I interviewed him. I interviewed oh, yeah, him. Great okay. book. Yeah, yeah, yeah brilliant. Yeah. Really, really funny book. And the sequel is really funny too. Yeah, my kids all read it actually. Yeah, yeah it's really good. It's great. He, he's addicted to that. And he's, he's currently he's really into one called The Book with No Pictures, which is, uh, <laughs> if you have a look, it's quite subversive. Uh, and tractors as well. I don't think with tractors in it. 
Okay, brilliant. Listen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Thanks a million for coming into us. Um, that's it. Paul Murray, the author of uh, Evening of Long Goodbyes, Skippy Dies and The Mark and The Voice. Paul, thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. Now, here at Top 5 Books, there's a lot more interesting guests and book recommendations in our podcast feed for you. If you're listening on iTunes, I'd appreciate if you could subscribe and if you could give us a rating if you have indeed enjoyed any of what you've heard. Also, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Chains Top 5 Books.